Do you fear the zombie uprising? Are you prepared to survive what's coming? If you listen very carefully, you might just make it out alive. This is Zompocalypse Now. Wasn't it just a few weeks ago we were watching a film where there was a twist and you look back on the film and you say, none of this makes any sense now. And Yeah, we got to do this all over again. <laughs> <laughs> and we just watched a movie like that again. <laughs> Except, I, okay, I would argue that high tension is really, really good until you get to the bullshit twist. Mm-hmm. And this movie is, I mean, even by 80s standards, really terrible. There is no reason that movie should have taken an hour and 50 minutes to watch. That was an hour and 50 minutes? Yeah. An hour and 50 minutes. I thought it felt a little long for a minute. Yeah, it is uh, 111-minute runtime, which... Uh, there's quite a bit of padding, but mm-hmm. there's a lot. There's a lot wrong with this film, but it is kind of. I mean, just on one hand, it is a product of its time. It is very much an '80s picture. I'm not sure how disco music goes with horror films. Um, <laughs> that's that's how much the the director understood children. They all love this right. kind of music. They like the disco. I got to seriously question my taste as a. What was I, about a 12 or 13-year-old kid when I saw it? Yeah, I mean... Okay, so on one level, Curtis, you were 12, 13 years old. There's a lot that can be excused at that young age. (laughs) On the other hand, (laughs) you should be ashamed of yourself. yourself. Let's build the time machine so we can go slap this movie out of young Curtis's hand. (laughs) (laughs) No! This had a different ending when I watched it. I would put money on it. I, I, you know, the. Well, we can talk. Yeah, we can talk about that as we get to the ending. Because there was a different ending. Yes. Um, This was, this was not the ending that, uh, that was in the original script. Yeah. There was some interference from money. People had Uh, interference from the director. Hmm. Hi, folks. This is Zompocalypse Now, and this week we have chosen to go back in time. But before we do that, let's introduce who we are. I'm Timothy Harvey. I'm Dustin. I'm Curtis. And this week we are looking at Happy Birthday to Me, the 1981 slasher psychological thriller Confuse-a-thon. Confuse-a-thon, yes. Um, which, Um, Which has a lot of things going on. Yeah, Curtis actually suggested this movie uh, before the 4th of July, right? Uh-huh. I think so, yeah. And then we ended up watching Dead Alive instead, or Brain Dead, depending on your region. Uh, and so we decided to go ahead and watch Happy Birthday to Me tonight, uh, because... As, we didn't have any better ideas, really. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I have never seen it, and... 
Tim said the last time he saw it was probably when it came out in the 80s. Uh, yeah, odds are pretty good. Well, odds are pretty good. There was a stretch of time when me and my friends, uh, I had a couple of friends who worked at video stores, and we would literally get off our various you know, work and go to the video store and get like four or five horror films. And we'd like binge it over a weekend. And I used to do that too. Oh, the days. This is one of them. Back in the days. Back in the day. So yeah, this was one of those films. I'm pretty sure it was, it, I have the vague memory that it fell into a weekend involving one of the Faces of Death films. No, man. And at least something by Dario Argento. Um, so I'm pretty sure it was in one of those weekends. But so it was probably probably my senior year in high school. So probably 80, 87, 88, somewhere in there. But it, it's been, you know, ever since then. And so there were things I did not remember about this film, watching it again. When I was a kid, I loved this movie. And I saw it once when I was a kid, once when I was a young adult. And uh, I have been telling people for years, they're like, name your top five horror movies. I'm like, happy birthday to me, because that's a deep cut obscure one that you probably haven't seen. And I remember it being good. I was so wrong. I was yes. wrong. I've been and, wrong. And people would go and find happy birthday to me on Curtis's recommendation and be like, oh, no. What's wrong with Curtis? Does Curtis need help? <laughs> um and like uh, we were saying before, this movie, I think, had the potential to be good, but it was just interfered with on, on a really a lot of levels by the director and by the producers and by, you know, expectations for the cast and, you know. Well, yeah, because, I mean, if you look at this cast, you're looking at people like Melissa Sue Anderson from mm-hmm. Little House on the Prairie. She was a big name. She was a big deal. At this, yeah. you know, in this time, um, Glenn Ford, yes, that Glenn Ford. It's you know, periodically you think, you know, slasher movies and famous actors, and you don't necessarily put them together. And yet, a lot of famous actors have been in, in horror films and slasher films. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them, not just at the beginning of their careers. I mean, George C. Scott made at least two horror films, and you don't think about that. These his other body of work tends to overshadow it. Glenn Ford was in this. Uh, reportedly, he did not enjoy making this movie and apparently was very difficult on set because he was not having a good time and did not want to do it. It's entirely possible he was under contract. Not Would not be the first time that a... Uh, so this is a dinosaur cop situation for him. Yeah, kind of. Although he give, he gives a pretty good performance, all things considered. I mean, he's he's actually one of my favorite parts of the movie. Uh-huh. Which, on a scale well, of major parts of this movie, that he plays a, a a just just left of pedophile uh, doctor in this but movie. All the men in this film are that's our that's our modern horrid. sensibilities tainting our nineteen eighty one selves because back then it wasn't. I mean, for an adult like that to show affection to a young person was kind of fine. You know, it's fine. Yeah, I guess it's true. Yeah, now it's like, why the fuck are you touching my human? Yeah. All, but all the her father, every male, yeah, friend every of guy hers, is, is, they are is, just yeah. all. These are all just creepy people. I don't care what decade they're in. I, I don't know why they chose to like add that as part of the theme is like the the sexual pressure that she's under constantly. I can tell you why. 
when we get a little bit later because I did a little research into this movie and I know some things about the original script. This is new for us and I'm not entirely comfortable with it. I know. I'm sorry. Sorry. It was, it was on accident. Here's what, here's what happened. Um, so before 4th of July, Curtis suggested this movie and I, on YouTube, I like to watch a lot of those, uh, videos where it's like the making of obscure movies. I like, I watch them. I watch all these like little things about movies. And there's this one guy that I watch who's doing a whole series over the summer on, uh, Canuck exploitation, Canadian horror films. And so you suggested happy birthday to me and just so happened the very next week he put out a video on happy birthday to me. And I was like, oh, okay. And it was like 15 minutes long. So I was like, I'm not going to get like, you know, super duper spoiled. I can still watch this movie. And, uh, and, you know, it's not like we've never watched stuff we've talked about or talked about stuff we've watched before. Uh, and so I watched that video and that video made me interested. And so I did a little tiny bit of research and, uh, now I know some things. So that's how it happened. Well, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to vacate a few brain cells just temporarily so that I can learn what you've learned. Because (laughs) after this, I think I'm going to. Maybe I'll come back to it in another 15, 20 years. I don't know. 60, 70 years old, mm-hmm. try to try this one on for size. Because yeah. I bet I relate, I more relate to the to uh, Glenn Ford's character and be like, yeah, it gets up. Because, you know, that's who this movie's for, I think. <laughs> Geriatric perverts. All right. So we start our film in uh, at the beautiful Crawford Academy, and uh, we meet a young lady named Bernadette. And Bernadette is walking to her car to go meet her friends at the local pub, and she runs into the headmistress, who is occasionally Irish. <laughs> uh, and so then she goes and gets in her car. Or they have a little, like, you and your friends. You and your friends who are, are, are high school seniors in Canada. And are old enough to go to the pub. Uh, that's how good her accent is, by the way. It's so spot on. I thought I was watching. Probably why she drops it halfway through the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going um, to be Irish for this part because I can't remember what I was in the last scene. <laughs> right. So Bernadette goes to get in her car to meet her friends and uh, is attacked. And like Curtis said, this is one of those you. This is one of those movies that if the character can't see it, it doesn't exist to them. Right. If it's not in camera frame, it's invisible yeah. to everyone. Right. Because she gets in her car and the the killer attacks her from the back seat. He like takes has to take two steps every single right. Time she gets attacked. She's like he's like right off camera. Right. Oh, yeah. She, she she gets away from him. She escapes the killer and uh, she runs like three steps away from the car where the killer was. Yeah. I, th- I could have sworn they were outside. And then the very next cut, she's in the like ground. Like, yeah. In a, in a garage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is, there's there's very little sense of geography in the first scene. Because because when she's first getting attacked, she's looking out the front window of her car, and there's people walking on the street. Lovers strolling by. 
And not only does she not honk her horn or make any kind of indication for these people that are right there to come help her, but when she gets out of her car, she's in a parking garage. There's kind of a brutalness to this scene. It goes on a long time. And in there's a lot of this film that does not deal with reality very well, but Mm. strangling actually does take a long time to kill a person with. I mean, it's, it's not, it's a thing you see happen very, very quickly in fiction, but it is in the real world. It takes a long time. And this scene goes on for a long time until, you know, uh, it appears that she's been killed. And then as soon as the killer relaxes, she bolts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Just three and a half steps. For three and a half, oh yeah, she she's very bad at escaping. She escapes for five feet at a time, and, and apparently cannot leave a parking garage because you know. Yeah, she, well, it magically appeared shot. around her, Kurt. Or them. <laughs> there's one shot where she's like trying to squeeze between this pylon and the bumper of a car, and the whole time I'm thinking, I bet you probably could have just gone around the other side there. Yeah. I mean, I understand how directors like, like this isn't real life. We're telling a story. We're building tension and all that stuff. But when sometimes you step too far off that allowable kind of gray mm-hmm. zone, I think the first scene did that. There are other scenes that don't probably. <laughs> right. And um, so, so Bernadette is, she runs back into the killer because she only walked five feet away from her car where he was, and he he cuts her throat and she dies. Oh wait, but wait! She says something very very important because it will be a recurring line of dialogue in this film, and it is, "Oh, it's you." Oh yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, she's like, "Thank well, God!" At first, me. she's excited. She's like, you know, excited that to see whoever this is. Literally. And thank God you're here. And but that doesn't last long because then she immediately is killed. Right. And beginning, what will also be a recurring theme in the film is how to dispose of a body. How easy is it really? Right. And the answer in this film is apparently extremely, extremely. easy. I don't know what the root law is in Canada, but in the United States, you do not need a license or permit whatsoever to transport a corpse. So maybe the murder was a little illegal. But her moving the bodies is completely within her rights. Well, there's a scene later, Curtis, you got to remember that the killer kills someone with uh, dr- by dropping a weight bar on their neck and then blood explodes everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And then a second later, the girlfriend walks in and there's no body, no blood, no nothing. Oh, yeah. Now yeah, so there is that, um, you know, got to carry handy wipes couple bandanas you're good you're good so anyway we go to the bar and there's some shriners having a party but there's also our th- our 10 main characters what song are they singing 99 bottles of beer on the wall that's right and if you thought that song was annoying in the rare occasions from your childhood that it was inflicted upon you um it gets le- no less annoying the older you get I had completely forgotten that that song even existed. I hear it so not often. Mm. Um, and you know what? Damn this movie. They could have picked some some German Bierstein swinging song to be singing because, you know, they're, you know, exotic Canadians. But they did. Language skills, probably. Where's the writer? 
<laughs> I wonder where, yeah, that is a good question. Where is the writer? Probably somewhere very upset. Yeah. Bragging to his friends that Glenn Ford is in his new movie. You guys should come with me to see it. Oh, shit. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, mistakes were made. Uh, so anyway, we meet our, our main 10 characters. It's the 10, the top 10, the 10 most popular seniors at Crawford Academy. Uh, and there's uh, Gen- uh, Gen- Gen- Genevieve, Amy, Alfred, who's a weirdo. Uh, just a bunch. There's a bunch of them. Uh, they're all weirdos. Yeah, they're all elitist little dickholes. And one has um, to wonder exactly um, if if there are eleven of them, are they still the ten plus one, or is it no? Uh, there's nine only of them? ten. Alfred was never really part of it. There, there's only ten. There's always only ten. And if somebody else showed up and was just was going to be popular, they were shit out of luck. There are rules. That's how it goes. There are rules. This is a yeah, norm, Timothy. <laughs> I, I was a theater kid. We were only a certain kind of popular <laughs> in high school. Well, this is this actually um, does kind of uh, address some one of the things that I always thought was really weird about eighties movies. Uh, or, or you know, movies in general, teen movies, where the popular kids were all like complete dickholes. Like the popular kids were the jocks, and they were bullies, and the mean girls, and all that stuff. And that was never ever my experience when I was in school. The kids who were the most popular were like the nicest kids. Oh yeah, they were popular because they were nice to everybody. Not, not, not where, not where I was. Nope. Really? Nope. Oh my God. I, yeah, my high school was popular. The most popular kids, the kids who got away with everything, you know, all of those guys who shit all over the rest of us were cunts. I was theater kid popular too in high school. And, you know, there were like, there were like jockey assholes and bitchy girls, but we knew they were jockey assholes and bitchy girls. Like nobody was making. Oh, they're so pop. They're so cool. It was always like, you know, damn Matt Garza, go sit back down. These guys really probably aren't like that. These characters, yeah. they probably just give each other shit. They stay within their circle and let everybody else do their thing. Yeah, not, we, don't, we don't actually see them abusing any other anybody. Students. Yeah, right, right. They're, they're they're all assholes to each other, but it's kind of a, a happy go lucky. I can never figure out who was dating who because everybody yeah. was dancing or hanging out with a different person, and it was so confusing. Yeah, I had no idea. I noticed that too. Watching this, it's like there's five guys and there's five girls, and when Bernadette doesn't show up. For the for the evening to hang out, it throws everything off. Because yeah. now there's there's five guys and four girls. Well, this was not something that was terribly unusual. I mean, for I, I kind of I I understand this sort of dynamic a little bit. I mean, in in that little group of high school high school uh, theater people, um, there are probably what twenty twenty five of us over you know who were sort of the core group over the three years you know, the, the main three years of high school. And a lot of us dated a lot of that mm-hmm. same group of people. 
I mean, no. it was sort of, I mean, it's, there was always that sort of incestuous theater department dating thing going on. So you can kind of, I mean, but it was in context of the rest of this movie, which we can get into a little bit later, there's, I mean, figuring out who doesn't want to sleep with Jenny is, yeah. is kind of hard. You need to, you know, you need to, you need to figure out who actually doesn't make a pass at her. And I think it's one character. I would have just at some point, any if I were any one of those guy characters, I would have just stopped at some point in this movie and just said, is anyone here going to get laid or not? <laughs> because I'm wasting my fucking time. Yeah. I'd at least like to talk about somebody getting laid. And no one ever does. No well, one the, the jockey kid who, who died from the, he was getting laid. By whom? He, he, he had the pretty blonde girlfriend. He was the only one that had a real girlfriend. I totally missed it. Well, I mean, they don't actually show them getting laid, but she's showing up at his house with pizza and beer. Well, Bernadette was supposed to be meeting one of the other guys. Bernadette was supposed to be meeting Alfred. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's apparently some sex was happening. We just don't ever see it. Right. And for as horny as they all were, they didn't really mention it that much. I don't know. I don't know how people would have reacted to have Melissa Sue Anderson in a sex scene. I think well, and the, here's the here's one of the things they worked so hard in this movie to create like suspects, and they used these the boys, the boys in this friend group, to make the suspects. So they all acted so strange and yeah. so like creepy, and you know, and did such weird bullshit that you know you're because you're, you're supposed to be like. I, I think the idea was, oh, maybe he's the killer because he did, you know, he. Oh, there was so much of that. Every, they did it so well. That's the thing in this movie they did so well is they they painted everyone to look like they could be the 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 killer. Mm-hmm. Once we once there was a killer, they, well, they started just painting everybody. They painted everybody, but some of them they painted with the kind of brush that you expected someone to, you know put clown shoes on them uh, right? and a big honky nose and some grease paint. They'd- you mean like, you mean like the, that scene in what is it? Arthur's place where he's like, I used her for a model. And well, that, that, and the, <laughs> that and the bell tower scene. I mean, it's, just, Oh yeah. Okay. I have a knife. Yeah. And like, then it gets to black. The part of the problem that this movie has is that it makes everybody, it works so, so hard to make everybody look like they could be the killer that, n- that everybody just looks like creeps, but nobody looks like they're really the killer. Like the minute Alfred showed up and was like, I'm the weirdo. I have a rat. I was like, oh, my name's Red Herring. My shirt is red and I am red. Yeah. <laughs> well, as these kids start getting picked off, and I'm not sure how much one by one, these awful teenagers begin to disappear. And we see them die. We see the same black pants and sneakers and black gloves. They do, they do the whole shooting around the face thing. And, and there's some good camera work in this film. There's actually some, uh, several good sequences where the camera work is actually very, very slick. There's a soccer game, for example, where the camera work, you know, shooting, shooting sports stuff uh, can be a real challenge. And there's some nice little camera moves there. But it's a, there's just like there's a recurring theme of, you know, oh, it's you. 
it's a recurring theme of white sneakers, black jeans, black gloves, you know. And as each of these characters disappear um, after meeting a grisly doom, and some of them are rather inventive, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, death by barbell. Mm-hmm. Well, death by groin shot, then death by barbell. Halloween was 1978. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, so there's we're only three years into the genre, and I think if you look at it from that perspective, this film did pretty well. Really, Friday the Thirteenth came out before this, but this yeah. film was a development ahead of Friday the Thirteenth. So. Um, and there were people who thought this was a bit of a ripoff of Friday the 13th, but they were essentially at the same time in production. So, um, was it the same people who liked Friday the 13th part 10? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, so, so yeah, I'm, there's some problems with this movie. <laughs> We're barely into the plot. Let's see if we can plot along here. Okay, so essentially, I mean, we don't have to go through everything. Jenny's friends are being killed or in very inventive ways, and the bodies are disappearing, so everybody just thinks they're missing. And nobody knows what's happening. Meanwhile, we're getting cuts into Jenny and her psychiatrist working on her memory issues because she was in a car accident with her mother and her brain was injured. And so they did an experimental procedure on her to help regrow her brain cells. Okay. I'd like to interrupt here. Using radio waves or what is it? An electromagnetic field. Yeah. So um, folks at home, no, this is not a thing that happens. This is not a thing that can happen. You know, if people want to believe that, just fucking let them. Well, but yeah. this is this is the first of. I mean, this is not the first. It becomes very, very clear that it's one of many bits of the film that if you sit there and go, and now let's compare it to reality. The right. you know, it just doesn't work. Nope. Uh, and although, and I will say that the 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 scenes where it you know it bumped through and like you got to see Jenny's brain surgery yeah that was a good effect that you know, brain surgery got, looked really that was really a real well. brain surgeon they got a real brain surgeon to do those scenes they yeah, wanted but, it to look realistic yeah they sure did with a dremel they did yeah, that. that part was a little i was like i don't know if i want someone putting a dremel near my no, it's like it's like a three eighths inch Dremel bit that mm-hmm. they're using on this girl's brain, and then the lid just fits back perfect. Yeah, well, it, you know, when they do that, they don't put the the bunk of brain back or the bunk of bone back. Yeah, they just like staple on some cardboard or yeah. yeah. But anyway, so so uh, Jenny begins to believe through the course of the movie that she has something to do with her friend's disappearances. Because it seems like, like her friends are disappearing, and she keeps hacking. Yeah, every time, every time she blacks out, one yeah, gone. one of her friends disappears. Um, and they all die in really and in, in inventive, interesting ways. And one of them is a motor motocross guy, and he he gets his scarf that he was wearing while he worked on his bike pulled into the gears, and his face is ripped off. And one of them is. Uh, is stabbed in the cemetery. Well, actually, that's when you start believing Jenny is the culprit because he follows Jenny. It's Alfred, and he follows Jenny into the cemetery. 
finds her and she turns around and stabs him. So it's not like we're supposed to believe all leading up that Alfred's going in there to do horrible things to her. Uh, unfortunately, it's actually Jenny who has the horrible things. He's well, just I- trying to be sweet, give her a rose in the yeah. cemetery. Yeah, but we also had a scene earlier where Anne, who is uh, Jenny's best friend, Alfred doesn't actually show up to one of... So all of these... uh, They keep having these get-togethers, which fewer and fewer people show up. (laughs) And uh, Alfred ends up being one of the ones... This is actually fairly early on. This is not too too long after their, their first friend has gone missing. And so they go over to Alfred's and find that the window's open because Anne apparently is a burgeoning cat burglar and they go break into his place and they find what appears to be Bernadette's severed head in a tray. And then Alfred shows up and Alfred, they've established that Alfred is in taxidermy and, you know, and that his friends find this creepy and they tease him about it. But there's a, what appears to be a severed head in a tray. And so he's like, she modeled for me. Maybe if you're lucky, you can model for me too. And they're like, yeah. oh God. And he's like, oh, it's a fake. And they're like, you're a dick. <laughs> Can't just tell him it's a fake. He's like, he just reaches in and pulls, out, a fake pulls out an eyeball. Well, and you're, uh, this film has some issues with trying to figure out if you're supposed to sympathize with Alfred or not, because he's sort of sweet and nebbish. And he clearly, like everybody else, as a thing for Virginie, but then you have a scene like this where it's like, no, he's a creep. He's a horrid, creepy person. Well, he's got his own, I mean, if you're going to do that shit, every special effects artist has a folder or a file filled with gore. Photographs of gore. Yeah. Called the morgue. Everybody has a morgue file. And I'm sure, I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that he had one too. It was probably, you know, pasted to the back of his closet so he could look at it every day. But the problem is, is that the relationship dynamics of this group of friends, and I use air quotes on friends because they're just such a weird group of relationships, is that you would know that about your friends. I mean, we had those friends, you know, we, yeah. all, my, all my friends who were into special effects in, in high school <laughs> and college, we knew they had the severed arm. We knew they had half a skull in their desk, you know, because they showed it to us all the time. It's like, oh, yeah. But, the, but the, those friends never took any sort of interest in poor Albert. I don't even know how he got yeah. around them. Yeah. His folks were rich, apparently. I mean, I guess that's the, the, the litmus yeah. that's getting into this group anyway. So. Code. Well, I mean, I mean, the headmistress who is, who is alternatively – Irish and not Irish says that at one point to Ginny, your your friends, the top ten, your richest, most popular kids in school, and that's how Alfred got in, and that's how Jenny got in, not because she was because she was new, newish, newish. So um, I can tell you now that here is one of the things in the original script. Uh, the 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 slasher was Jenny was supposed to be the killer, but she was supposed to be the killer in the way that she was channeling her dead mother. Oh, it was supposed to be kind of a, a psycho homage. Right. Jenny was supposed to be whenever she would get nervous or sexually tense. 
she would kill as her mother because of this brain operation, this experimental brain operation that she had. And the and fact yeah. that as her memories were coming back, she was remembering this horrible thing that happened to her mother, which her mother drowned in an accident after the, the kids she ends up killing snubbed her birthday party. And so in the original script, that was supposed to be what happened. These boys, that's why it was mainly the boys who died. The only female, uh, Bernadette and, uh, and Amy were the only female victims. Uh, and that's why none of the kids who weren't part of the top 10 that weren't actually there when she was there before got killed either. Because it was only the kids who were supposed to be at her birthday party. Right, and there's there's an interesting, that whole scene where we actually discover the whole backstory for this, what actually caused the accident. Um, there's a whole lot of things going on here that you're sort of supposed to just, you know, it's supposed to answer all these questions. Whereas, you know, the mom threw together this party. She's recently rich. She married into money. And none of these kids show up for Jenny's party. And she's like, why didn't they show up for your party? And Jenny goes, mom, they don't know me. <laughs> and so she had just arrived to this academy and her mother thought just because she was another rich girl, they would show up for this party. You know, but her mother's garbage and everybody knows it. Yeah. No, there's just so many things going on here that it's kind of like, if you, if you look at why Ginny was supposed to be killing these other kids, none of it is their fault. Mm-hmm. It's a completely arbitrary revenge. It's I'm blaming, you know, if Jenny was the killer, blaming these kids for whether it was her own psychosis or channeling her mother. But here's the thing about the original plan. It's believable in that this girl was had a had a brain injury was had an experimental treatment the treatment did not go well and therefore x is happening so it was a it would have been a believable thing in the, the context thing, of a slasher movie believe in the context of a slasher movie yes the what but what they do is completely unbelievable it has no basis in any like what yeah so so that moment in high tension yes where you sit there and go wait what <laughs> hang on and you start trying to put together the pieces and you, know, you go backwards in time and you go, okay, well, wait a minute. How could I have seen this scene if this really happened? How did she do this if she was here? How can, what the, no. And, there are, and then once this reveal happens, and literally the reveal happens in the final moments of the film. Folks, for story structure, you don't reveal your big twist ending five minutes into the end of the film without setting up. You can do it. I mean, it's perfect. You, it, it, you can do that kind of sudden reveal at the end, but you gotta make the clues match the reveal. You can't just have it go. And now this, because that's not how it works. And that's because you have to know the ending before you write the fuck. <laughs> Well, mm-hmm. you can't change the ending completely yeah. <laughs> and expect the rest of the film to fall into place. I swear mm-hmm. when I saw this movie that the, 
there was the twist and then, then it was over. And then at the, and, and then what I witnessed tonight was a twist. And then that other twist and then kind of a half twist at the end. So the, the buildup to the end of the film, really once, um, once you get past the fact that X number of teenage kids had been killed and Jenny thinks it's her and Jenny thinks she's going crazy and then the body count just ramps up because the psychiatrist is killed and it looks like her friend Anne is killed and her father is, is killed after discovering this tableau of dead teenagers and apparently his daughter is the murderer. And at this point, we are right. looking at we are looking at Ginny's face. We are looking Wait, at. Hang on, hang on. We have to we have to stop right here because one of the best. I will tell you this: the most effective thing that happened in this movie happened in this little sequence. Um, the dad is looking for Ginny after he finds her blood spattered bedroom, bedroom where she supposedly killed her psychiatrist, right? And mm-hmm. he runs through the uh, cemetery, which is conveniently close to his house. And he sees a shape standing in the cemetery. And so he runs over to the shape and turns it around. And it's the blonde girl Amelia. who was the girlfriend of the guy who got killed with the weights. Mm-hmm. And she's standing there in the rain. She's soaking wet. And she's got a birthday gift in her hand. And she doesn't say a word. She just points up at the cottage. She is traumatized. Which... which and that was such an, a great little piece of writing because it told you with no dialogue that she showed up for Jenny's birthday party. She has seen something terrible and she might never be right again. Like, oh, they broke know? that girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was, it really was a good moment. That was yeah. Good. Unfortunately, it's followed by 4,000 years of the father moving up to the cottage through a bush for shit this sequence and the expression on his face is strangely upbeat this whole sequence as soon as he leaves behind the traumatized girl and walks toward the cottage he looks like his his face is full of anticipation i'm just like are you okay are you (laughs) finds a body on the way and everything yeah. Oh, yeah. He finds, finds a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist. Oh, and his and his wife's grave dug up. Empty. Okay. Again, ah. coming back to things that just don't work. If you consider how this twist is supposed to happen, uh, having dug a grave for a film, um, and it's it takes effort, and it takes a long time to dig a grave or to dig somebody up. If you're an 18 year old girl, um, that's maybe 98 pounds soaking wet. You had to have been working on that for three or four days, and nobody saw it. Yep, nobody noticed the thing. Nobody saw a thing. I mean, the graveyard is like right there, and Jenny visits mom's grave all the time, and 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 then there's a reveal. So she gets to the cottage. The dad gets to the cottage and discovers this tableau, and what appears to be his daughter. Um, and, and again, we're looking right at Melissa Sue Anderson playing what appears to be Jenny. And this is very much Melissa Sue Anderson. You look at it and go, we've been watching this character the entire time. Yep. And then after dad collapses into a chair and she offers him cake, his, you know, birthday, she stabs him in the throat. And we discover 
that one of the bodies at the table is not in fact Anne, it's actually Ginny. Because the Ginny we've been watching is not in fact Ginny, it's Anne in a mask. Oh, she pulls it off like fucking Scooby-Doo. Right. So this moment is that moment in uh, uh, High Tension where you sit there and go, wait, what? Hang on. No, 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 no. (laughs) Because, okay, Tracy Bregman plays Anne. Tracy Bregman, perfectly fine. You know, young lady, attractive young lady. Playing the bubbly friend, the good buddy. Um, And so the idea that your friend can turn out to be your enemy, fine. That's not an issue. You know, that's all a plot against you. Sure. Okay. Um, But if you take these two young women, Tracy Bregman and Melissa Sue Anderson, and you put them side by side, which they do a lot in this film, there's one thing you can definitely say is that I don't care what kind of mask she was wearing. (laughs) They have very different shaped faces. There is no way that and, any of the characters in this film would believe for a second that Tracy Bre- uh, Anne would in a in a Ginny mask would be anybody other than what is well, wrong you, with your head? If you wanted to, you could suspend your disbelief and say that when she killed Bernadette and the guy with the the weights and the other guy with the uh, with the motorcycle. Because those are the three we don't see the face. Right. We can just assume she was dressed as Anne. When they say, oh, it's you, they really think it's Anne. There's no question whether yeah. they think it's Ginny or anything like that. And the only ones that we see Jenny, air quotes, commit are Alfred and, uh, and the skewer guy. Right. But the best part about her explanation is it goes back in time and you can see that when she, when she goes to kill these people, she like anesthetizes and she like uses ether to knock her out. And it's like four different times in a row of, of just the hand popping out. And you know, well, it's, it's probably, I think it's probably, it was probably chloroform because that's extraordinarily easy to make. Mm-hmm. But it's but it, again we come back to the reality here, and I know this is a, a, a trope in fiction, but that's not actually how any of these chemicals work. You cannot just slap a, a rag across somebody's face and they immediately pass out. That's not how this works. Not how it works. No, I'm so it takes glad about, I never did that then because that would have been like, wait, this isn't going to plan. No, it would be, be horribly embarrassing. You have to research this stuff ahead of time, Curtis. Well, and now we get to why the the twist was made. Uh, the what the twist is? It's that Anne is actually Jenny's half sister, and that her father, Jenny's father, who's been a doting father this whole time, is not actually her father. Anne's father is her father, and her mother was a townie hua, and and caused the breakup of Anne's parents' marriage. Hang on. Which is the also the the This is I didn't I didn't understand this shit at all. Okay. So they're half sisters. Yes. Jenny's mom is also Anne's mom? 
No. No, Jenny's dad is Anne's dad, but the dad that was Jenny's dad in the movie is not her real dad. That's just who Jenny's mom was married to. And I couldn't carry that bullshit in a bucket. Yes. As far as Jenny's dad appears to believe, there's no indication that he knows this is that she that Jenny is not his real daughter. Yes. He doesn't say anything in the film oh. to indicate he thinks. I don't he, think he. I don't think he knew because after after mom died, he would have just fucked off. Been like, here's an allowance. I don't need. I don't know money. the way he was touching his daughter. It's all very creepy. Well, but and <laughs> not, not only that, but Jenny was in that you know comatose vegetative state until she had the experimental thingies. So um, anyway, <laughs> Anne has decided to kill Jenny, but also all of her friends. Yeah. So she says that basically because uh, Jenny ruined her entire life. Everything is, everything is Jenny's fault. Oh yeah. Her life was shit. Wasn't it? Yeah. It's terrible. And then, but because of that and the fact that Anne ruined Jenny's party all those years ago, she will kill all of her friends and Jenny's friends to frame Anne, Jenny, frame Jenny for the murder suicide, and if there's one thing that you get out of this entire scene, is that Anne is batshit crazy. Yeah. On the other hand, you also get through all her flashbacks reinforcement of the fact that none of these things could possibly have happened this way, because right. she is in fact a ninety pound relatively i mean she's she's not like this gigantic muscular person who can haul this bodybuilder and his weights and clean up the room before the girlfriend gets back she's not the person who can dig this grave you know if she had a, a scream like accomplice um might make make a little sense but no this is this is very much a let's change the ending so that it's not quite as predictable as having yeah, alfred had been in on it all along and he had been making her masks and helping her do these things, that would have made a lot more sense. Yeah. It would have, it would have been, you know, cliche, but whatever. It would have made sense. Uh, but here's the reason, here's one of the reasons that the twists happened. Not only did the director not like the, the, the ending for whatever reason, Melissa Sue Anderson's people didn't like it either because they were like, she's going to be a big deal. Yeah. And this so, ruined her career, I think. It did. It, it, it ruined it. Yeah, this basically derailed her film career. Right, but they changed the ending to where her character wasn't the killer for the reason of we don't want our star to be the killer. Fuck that. It was much better when it was like that. I swear I saw it. Well, it wouldn't have been good any, anyway. Well, okay, so in eighty in eighty one it would have been a standard slasher of this new of this, you know, this slasher genre, which was really kind of a thing that was happening then. It would have been pretty much in this, you know, not at the high end. It's no Halloween. Um mm-hmm. but it's it, it there were a bunch of I'd say adequate slasher films in this time period. They would have fallen pretty well in the adequate category. Now, though, just by the films between what we've seen, you know, from then until now, this film just reeks of all these different cliches. It's got, you know, the story stuff, a lot of stuff that we were willing to accept in horror films. There were a lot of bad horror films in the 80s. And there were a lot of bad popular horror films in the 80s. 
you know, I, I realize this is heresy to some people, but the Friday 13th films are not well written. And yeah. the only reason you even go to those films is to watch the bodies fall. But they're, the, in terms of the scripts, the scripts are usually for, mo- for a lot of 80s slasher films. Or they were just, you know, thinly, thinly uh, scripted scenes to connect one kill to another. Is there, do you suppose, and I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I've never, but I've played one on TV. I've never even done that. I, I wonder if there is a connection or an association in your brain on a chemical level. Because, like, for instance, when, uh, when men in particular, but women too, when, when we watch porn, we're stimulated in a, in a, with, with chemical, chemicals released in our brain that make our genitals do things. And, you know, we get turned on, right? Yes. There's a, there has to be some sort of uh, uh, connection between porn and horror because I think it's very, it's very similar. The, the way if you watch a good horror movie, it's almost sexually exciting, but not. You know what I mean? Well, sex and death and horror have been, you know, intertwined. I mean, the, the whole the whole concept of horror being a morality play, and this was a big thing in the 80s with horror films, 70s too, um, where basically the idea was if you had sex, you were going to die. Right. I mean, that's just, that's the horror trope right there is that the, and the final girls, <clears throat> the concept of the final girl came out of the girl who didn't have sex. The final girls were all the virgins. They were the ones who who you know made it through the end of the film because they were still pure as soon as they lost that all of you whores have to die exactly mm-hmm. yeah it's well it's it's the madonna whore thing too so it's there's a whole lot the massage the, the built-in misogyny of the of a lot of the basic horror slasher tropes is pretty blatant um did you ever see uh behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon yes yeah. Okay. Absolutely. One of my one of my favorite horror films uh, because it's it's all about subverting the trope. And there's a whole sequence in there uh, where he, you know, there the premise of the film for those who haven't seen it is a camera crew is following along a guy who wants to be the next big serial killer in a world where serial killers are celebrities. So, and, yeah, like a slasher. He wants to be right. A and it's 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 a very witty, well crafted movie. Uh, but they're talking, he talks about the concept of the final girl, the concept of, you know, the, the purity of the, of, of the, you know, selecting the, the right victim and how that relationship between the killer and the, you know, the final girl is this, this, you know, beautiful thing and how it's all, you know, it's got this almost romantic aspect to it. And it's really funny and really disturbing. And in a film, unfortunately, where every male in the movie is so creepy and so glomming all over Ginny. I mean, every single one of them is touching her in a really inappropriate manner at some point in this movie. <laughs> yeah, they do. And they tried it and they later, I mean, like in the next scene or they go to a thing and then they skip a scene and go back to him. And he's like, what, what do you mean? I was just playing around. It's fine. Yeah. We like you. We're good. You know, they try to play it off like that, but I, I, I just can't forget that, that he was the, these are the, this is the way he, they were behaving. And, uh, and I, it's not cool with me. So when they try to make it cool with her, I'm like, don't talk to her like that. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in 1981, I was like, yeah, why are you being such a bitch? 
<laughs> well, that's maturing. That's growing as a human being, Curtis. I would Thank like God. To, I would like well, to think Let it have people in my life who tell me what to think about things. Okay. Well, let's finish this up. Yeah. So, because I'm tired. Well, and there's not a lot really else to say. I mean, it's the film has some inventive killings. The performances. Um, Melissa Sue Anderson is perfectly fine in the role for a, a character who is written to be confused most of the time and thinking she's a killer the rest of the time. Um, and she's a great actress, really. She's a, she's a very attractive young woman. So you can kind of believe that everybody, you know, has a thing for her, but they're all relatively attractive. And there's, there's faces in this film that you will recognize as character actors who went on to do a bunch of other stuff. They've been in other movies and TV. Um, Who the hell was that one dude, the ugly dude? You know what I'm talking ugly about? Ugly dude. Yeah, well, I don't want to say he's ugly. He just had a face made by a cobbler. Well, uh, let's see. Matt, Matt Craven, Lawrence Dane. Um, these are all guys who went on to be a lot of do a lot of character work. Yeah. Um, of course, Glenn Ford. I think Glenn Ford, aside from the fact he was a little too touchy, um, I would not have wanted my psychiatrist when I was in therapy to be quite so stand so quite so close on a regular basis yeah on set too just like oh yeah <laughs> what in the what in the crap am i having to say here what is this yeah <laughs> i don't want to be here am i supposed to kiss this young girl on the face there's a, i'm her doctor damn it there's a whole scene where he's just like looking at her like if he shows up as the killer later in this movie, that's not how I remember it, but I'll believe it because he's <laughs> got her going, I'll protect you and keep you from all harm. It's like, oh, okay, you're terrifying. Uh, and But, I mean, you know, it's, it's, he still does a good performance. And the guy who played um, Jenny's dad was about, I don't know, he had moments when he was, he was good. But a lot of times he was, you know, again, somebody who was standing a little too close to his daughter. See, and here's another thing that was that irritated me about this film. They give him the final girl moments, the finding of the bodies, the, mm. the little bit of explanation, you know, that should have been one of the girlfriends. Like one of the, cause three of the, three of the 10 don't die and are not even really connected to the, the murder plot at all. Uh, a guy and two of the girls. What right. it should have been was one of those two girls who found out all this stuff and was brought into this situation. Oh, yeah, that would have, that would have made more sense. This they absolutely good. shoehorned that detective in there so he could be the one that finds her in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the, twist, the twist at the end is that she still ends up losing because... She struggles with Anne, and she kills Anne after Anne has, you know, this is why you must die speech. And the police detective miraculously shows up at this point for script reasons to discover Ginny standing there with the knife. Red And all the bodies. And all the blood. She's covered in in Anne's blood because she just stabbed her in the gut. And he looks at her. And and, and did one of those great movie deaths where it's like, oh, no, I've been stabbed. I'm dead immediately. So, yeah, the the, the detective shows up and he's like, what have you done? And the movie ends. And that's it. So, so, and wins, I guess. Here's how I would have done it. Detective never shows up. Screw that guy. We don't need him. But dad comes home after, after, uh, you know, same scenario. He comes home. He sees that there's a lot of blood. And he's like, what's going on? She pops out of a corner just quick, like stabs him in the head. Right? 
So now we see it's her doing it. And then out to the cut to the uh cottage, right? Uh-huh. Here comes her little friend with her box of presents going to a party to see my friends. I don't know they're dead. Holy shit, my friends are dead. The end. That's how you I would have ended it there. With yeah, because it's finding all the bodies. He didn't particularly deserve any more than that. I don't think. No, no real twist. Just have the friend find the bodies, and she's all broken now. And then, but the thing is, here's the thing. Somebody else thinks they did it. That way, you can end the movie on a question mark. Maybe get a sequel out of it. It was the early 80s. They weren't thinking sequels. And that's probably for the best because... Uh, this movie, yeah. You think they could have got uh, Glenn Ford back? <laughs> I think it's unlikely. For the flashbacks. Well, I think, honestly, a remake of this could end up really, really good if they had, you know... Nick kinda... Nolte as the father, for sure. <laughs> I don't know. It's a curious piece. It's it's a piece of horror history. If you're uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm, I'm not going to tell you not to because it's got you know some interesting performances and some nice kills and an ending that is it didn't make me as an angry. ending. It didn't make me angry like High Tension did. No, but I think part of it is because, like you said, Dustin, uh, High Tension is so good up until that point. Yeah. This film, and some of it's looking back on a historical level. It's 19, it's an early '80s horror film. There's a certain amount of cornball that we've come to expect from that time period of, of that were not the great horror films. You know, they were the ones that you know this film made money. It made its budget back, so at least it had that. But it did derail Melissa Sue Anderson's movie career, and uh, Glenn Ford, as far as I'm aware, never did horror again. He only did two movies after this one. This was and, definitely on the downhill for him. Yeah. So anyway. Um, so yeah, that's that's happy birthday to me, folks. Um, check it out if you like. Can't say I recommend it. Oh, I gotta say, you guys bailed, but that song at the end was awesome. That song was actually pretty good. It's we're still, so we we're watching the credits, and we all take a, we, so we watch the film, folks, just so you know how we do this. We watch the film, then we take a little break before we, we record. And and Dustin had gone off, and Curtis and I are still sitting here, and we're listening to the mu- music. And I'm a film noir guy, and Curtis is like, Tim, <laughs> this is a film noir song, and I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> and you, you can see this, you know. And now I want to see the horror movie version of this, where you've got this you know, torch singer on a stage at a nightclub in the spotlight. And she's singing this song about my birthday, which is sad and creepy. And I'm just like, okay, now I want to, I want to see that scene. Yeah. So yeah. yeah the, the, I had to go downstairs and eat ice cream. There you go. So there, so there you go. I reckon, I recommend the end credits music. You can Google that Dustin. You can get caught up. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure you can find it online. So, all right. Well, folks, we hope you've enjoyed listening to us discuss a film that I'm not sure we liked or care enough about to dislike on an active level. But, you know, thank you for recommending it, Curtis, because it's been years since I've seen it. So it was good to watch it again anyway. And and Dustin hadn't seen it before. Sometimes they're great. And sometimes our memories. They can all be winners. Exactly. So if you have seen the film and agree with us or disagree with us, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. We would love to hear from you guys. Type in Zompocalypse Now into the search form on either website and you will find us. Uh, you can you know, please share the podcast. If you 
enjoy our conversations here. And uh, find us on podcast.com and iTunes. You can leave comments for us there as well. If you have recommendations for films you'd like to hear us talk about, we would always love to hear from you about that as well. Dustin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Curtis, for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for me joining you. And thank you guys for listening. As always, we appreciate it. And please join us again for another episode of Zompocalypse Now next week. Zompocalypse Now is produced and recorded by Timothy Harvey and Dustin Adair for Just Some Guy Productions. All rights reserved.